This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. I'm joining you today from my home office as Penn continues to social distance so that the heroes in our hospital system and the essential on-campus staff can all stay as safe as possible. So first, I want to send a shout out to all of them because we are grateful for you. And just to note that new episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, so be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle at SXM Business, as well as my handle at Laura Zarrow, to let us know what you're thinking and what you want to know. One thing we do know is that women only make up 28% of the workforce in science and tech, and too small a percentage of those women are also women of color. My guest today knows firsthand the challenges that Black women face and how they cause the professional pipeline to success to start leaking as early as childhood. Structural racism, implicit bias, imposter syndrome, and the pressure to be twice as good and work three times as hard are just a few of them. She also knows the power of role models, though, especially ones in whom women can see themselves and turn to for mentoring and sponsorship to support success despite those challenges. So she's written a book that she hopes will help underrepresented women advance themselves, and those of us who can serve as allies and mentors help them along the way. Suzanne Tedrick is the author of Women of Color in Tech, a blueprint for inspiring and mentoring the next generation of technology innovators. Suzanne's a cloud computing technical specialist for IBM, fiercely committed to increasing participation of women and people of color in STEM, educational and professional opportunities. She's a career mentor for IBM's Pathways in Technology Early College High School Initiative and a volunteer workshop technical assistant for Black Girls Code, a nonprofit that empowers girls of color to develop in-demand IT skills and prepare to advance in careers in tech. So Suzanne, welcome to Women at Work. I'm really thrilled to have you here today. Laura, thank you so much. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here too. Thank you. So on your website, SuzanneTedrick.com, you, you wrote a really wonderful article um, speaking to this time we're in right now, um, particularly about how allies can support Black women in tech and all people who are underrepresented and going through this right now. And you noted all these complex emotions that are surfacing for members of the Black community right now. How are you? Before we start talking about advice for other people, I want to check in. And how are you taking care of yourself? Well, you know, sharing all this good stuff with other people. That takes a certain amount of balance. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely a lot right now. Um, I mean, we're still kind of going through the, the COVID-19 pandemic and, you know, the fallout, so to speak, of what it's wreaking on our economy and the rest of the world. Uh, so there's there's that challenge, uh, but then there's you know as a black woman you know what is the appropriate response for me you know with everything that's going on, and how do I manage my mental health? How do I manage my energy? How am I there for my family? You know and and other loved ones. So so I would say today I'm good, but it's definitely a day to day, and sometimes hour to hour. You know situation. I appreciate your honesty and the strength that you're showing and that you're spending one of those precious hours where today is good with us. So thank you. <laughs> um, 
so Suzanne, even though I can, it's pretty clear to me that you're all the work that you're doing comes together as as being a force for good. Talk to me about what inspired you to write the book now. Definitely. So the, the book is in large part inspired by my own journey into technology. So prior to working at IBM, I was actually in financial services for a number of years, working in administrative and operations type roles. And it paid well, uh, but I hated it. <laughs> like I really, really Sincerely hated it. <laughs> now, so you're so, so not like sort of hated it. You really hated it. I, I really, I really, really did. And after a while, I was remembering what my husband would keep saying, you know, when I kept doing something over and over again, but yielding the same result. He's like, that's the definition of insanity. And after a while, I, I had to stop and say, like, why am I constantly applying for jobs in an industry that I know I'm never going to like or love? on any level. And I, I finally just had to say, okay, enough, enough of this cycle of, you know, being fed up and not being fulfilled. And I, I thought about what I enjoyed as a, as a child, which was I always enjoyed computers and technology. Um, my, my father and I would uh, take apart appliances, or rather I would take apart the appliances and my father would just look in horror as I did it. <laughs> but always playing with, you know, the, the various gadgets and, and things that he would bring home. And I said, okay, well, I, I know this is something I love, but I, I don't really know where I fit in. I don't see myself as a, a, a software engineer. Uh, you know, like I don't really enjoy coding. So, so if, it is going to be tech, what is that going to look like? And I decided to uh, go back to school and at the same time, um, pursue every and any opportunity to under build my awareness of the tech industry, as well as learn as much skill as possible and apply that skill. So that meant uh, volunteer work, that meant a lot of internships and hackathons and boot camps and self-study. Um, meant a lot of late nights and, you know, time away from family. And, you know, it was, it was a lot, it was a lot to try to do, but, you know, I glad that I did it because it did pay off and it did lead me to, you know, have an internship at IBM and then to be hired full time. So when I was approached to write the book, it, really was so that I could help other people who are kind of having that same kind of, they have the, the curiosity, but they have the, a little bit of inertia. Like, I don't know where to start. I don't know where to begin. I don't necessarily have the, the hugest support system in place. How do I go about making this transition? And the last part, the support system was the, the biggest thing that I wanted to address because for women of color, the support systems are not always stable or, mm -hmm. or they're not even present for a number of different reasons. And, and that's the main reason why we're seeing not only low numbers, but a negative migration uh, of black women specifically in the tech, in the tech realm. So talk to me for a minute about when you say support systems, what do you mean by that? Um, is it the, support system of the people at home, you know, our parents, our partners, our kids, um, it, or is it the bigger system in which we work and live in our society or both? 
It's definitely both. I think when we talk about the lack of diversity and inclusion in tech, we tend to talk a lot about the academic world and the professional. And those are definitely very important components. But it sometimes happens as early, you know, as, as five or six, where a girl may be experience, uh, expressing her desire to go into a STEM field, but not necessarily getting that stimulation in terms of activities, not necessarily getting the support of you know, family and community. Uh, there are still people that view STEM careers as these are careers for boys. Mm-hmm. Then entering into the, the more of the cultural prospect, uh, you know, women of color typically tend to be more caretakers for the rest of their families. Um, you know, while men are expected to just go out, work, and do their thing without really checking in or, or validating anything. Uh, so it, that needs to be addressed as well. And unfortunately for, for many girls, it's just, you know, you don't have it. It's either your family might not necessarily understand how to support you or they don't want to, or, um, you know, not having access to the academic resources. Like many people of color are in called uh, in what's called STEM deserts, where they don't have access to, you know, rigorous uh, STEM classes or or resources. So it's it's all of these factors that are really playing into what's what's going on, and they all have to be addressed together, and it has to be addressed by by everyone in society, frankly. Mm-hmm. Clearly. So it's, I really appreciate you explaining this. One of the things that I found um, so unusual in the book and so helpful was that you really gave very practical pieces of advice for how to take those first steps. And it makes sense because you're speaking to a community that's in that um, literal and figurative desert, so to speak, of um, by not having um, role models, by not having courses, by not having a cultural norm, um, never mind then being um, sustained through an academic or a professional pipeline, the chances just get slimmer and slimmer of somebody coming out in tech on the other side. So one of the things that was surprising to me, and I loved how you wrote about it, was um, Going into a tech field does not mean you are A, a coder, and it does not mean you need an advanced degree in computer science, right? That's absolutely right. And, and, and trust me, I, I don't think I'd be employed on my coding ability. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you gave a lovely rundown in the book, but for our listeners, um, give me a sense, help, help us see the variety of options that exist in tech for positions so that you can see where, yes, there's coding, but what are the other dimensions of the tech field that, so that we can start to wrap our heads around what's possible for a career path? Sure. So I talk about a number of different professions that you know, require you to have the technical depth, but also require you to have other skills that are necessary. So like data scientist, being able to look at numbers and being able to tell a story, to visualize a story from someone to have some actionable insight. I mean, that's, you know, that takes just as much 
technical skill as it does problem solving and analytical skills. Uh, you have uh, technical consulting where, you know, depending on the engagement you have with a client, you may be helping them to implement new technology or you may be telling them, hey, you really need to modernize what you've got going on here because this is not going to get you <laughs> to where you'd like to go. <laughs> um, there's user experience uh, design where you are literally the person building the product and the service for the end user. So that really requires you to have a deep sense of empathy for your user, but at the same time balancing the needs of a business, like making sure that said product or service will be profitable at the end of the day. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's what I do. So I, I'm in technical sales, and a lot of my job is, you know, helping clients to understand, you know, what their needs are and making sure that I can address both the technical and business requirements. And that requires a great deal of, you know, technical capability as well as communication and business skills. So you have to balance out those, you know, three domains. And sometimes you're going to be better at one than the other. <laughs> so. so, you know, when I hear the word innovator, I usually think about things like creativity, um, but I think all too often when we hear about like careers in tech, we don't think about empathy. We don't think about, you know, that aspect of creative listening and communication that sounds like it's a part of these different fields, these different dimensions of the field that you're talking about that could be really appealing to people that might not have otherwise seen themselves in it. Yeah, I think what tends to happen is in most media, we, we talk about tech and we just talk about the underlying technology skills that are necessary. But even for going into software engineering or, or software development, you need far more than just being able to code in Python or Java. You, you need to be able to communicate with broad teams because not everyone's going to have that technical expertise. You need to be able to problem solve. Uh, what is the saying? There's, there's several ways to, you know, fix a problem. And the same is true with coding. There's no one way to, you know, code a program. There's uh, many, many different ways. <laughs> and somehow you have to find the quickest, most efficient way um, to solve said problem. So it, 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 you need to be able to do both very well, both the, the hard skills, which are the quantifiable skills that you can learn in a classroom or through other types of learning. And then there's soft skills where, you know, these are harder to teach in a classroom. They just kind of come with time and experience. And really good technical professionals realize that and do both in tandem. So I want to go back to something you were saying in the beginning, um, that you were in financial services and you were not happy. And, <laughs> and I want to know a little bit about why and also talk about um, work-life integration, because as you, you also were talking about the, um, the, the burden that often falls on Black women's shoulders to be caretakers for people in their families and their communities. So um, how... What are the demands if you go into tech? My impression is that we use our tech 24-7, so people in tech are often working 24-7, um, and that they're also, um, that it's demanding. 
um, yet that it happens in all kinds of places. So share with me a little bit from your perspective. What did you hate in financial services? <laughs> what went away by going into tech? And how did you, um, how, how, now financial services is no cakewalk either. So talk to me about the demands <laughs> on your personal life and what people can and should expect to be able to carve out for themselves if that's the path that they go. Sure. So financial services, and, and I, I don't mean any disrespect for anyone that's in financial services. I, I you know, We're Wharton. Like we know a lot of people who yeah. really love it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like everyone's got their thing. It just literally was not my thing. I like, and, and I worked at a brokerage house. I worked for a wealth management company. I like, I worked in different facets of the financial services, you know, domain. And it just bored me <laughs> because it, it was almost, it was almost this monotony to the, to the day. Like you, you know that your day is going to start at 7.30 AM. You know, your day is going to end at 4 PM, you know, and, and you're going to do this Monday through Friday. It's really not going to change or deviate all that much. <laughs> and I think for me, I'm just like, I, I need diversity in, in things to do. I, I need diversity of challenges. I like meeting different people. I mean, you definitely meet different people in financial services, but usually they're angry about <laughs> 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 not getting their money or something. But um, yeah, uh, it, it's a different type of like interaction with a different type of energy and innovation. Um, and, and just the, the things that you can get involved with, like you were mentioning, like innovation and creativity, uh, you definitely need to have that mindset for technology, um, regardless of what role you, you decide to, you know, take in, tech, in the tech industry. Um, in terms of what you can expect, um, it's literally going to depend on, like, where you land. So if, let's say, you're doing uh, technical support. Generally speaking, it's probably going to be very standardized in terms of your schedule and your scope of responsibilities. If you're talking about sales engineering or consulting, you have to be prepared to let your schedule be in someone else's hands. <laughs> it's really not, um, really not in your control at that point. It's literally the client and what they need. And Sometimes the client needs things on Saturdays. Sometimes the client needs something at 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> like, um, so yeah, so you just have to have that expectation in those types of client-facing roles that your, your schedule may not necessarily be all your own. For software development and engineering, it's kind of the same, although the reason is that because everyone's using apps now, and websites, uh, you have to make sure that they're running 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Like we as a society, we are not forgiving about apps that are down for, you know, five minutes five or seconds. like websites that are not available. Like we remember, like you can have service up to the day, like what happened with Google and that outage for all of their, um, their Google suite. But everyone remembers that day where everything went out for two hours and it was just <laughs> like a travesty. Um, so to illustrate that point, you know, 
tech companies and, and other firms, like they need to make sure that their applications and services are running 24-7. And because of that, if you're in a uh, site reliab reliability engineer role or a development role, you can't expect that if there's some kind of outage or some kind of problem that your hours may creep up into the 70, 80 hour work week territory. So, um, yeah, so there's that diversity in terms of like what's going to be involved, but it, it really will depend on where you land. Except there is one catch here for all those hours you're working. You're being pretty fairly compensated, yes? Definitely. <laughs> so you can outsource things like house cleaning, right? <laughs> Yeah, and, and, and to be honest, that was, um, that was also a motivator for me as well, coming from uh, financial services. Like, if you're working in certain positions, obviously, you'll be paid more. But if you're working in mostly administrative or operations roles, which tend to be viewed as low value and, and tend to have a very limited um, terms of, like, how you can advance uh, your earnings potential, um, is not going to be as much as it is in tech. And then there's that fun thing of things being automated. <laughs> so unfortunately, <laughs> there, there, there are studies now that are pointing to the fact that um, these positions, which are mostly held by women, are being uh, kind of phased out because we're automating everything. So there's also that job longevity, like will I still have a job issue? Right. So instead of being in the position that's being phased out, you could be in the position that's creating the automated solution to it. Exactly. Exactly. Which doesn't seem like it's going to end anytime soon. So there's a lot of career opportunity there. Oh, absolutely. There, there are so many different, you know, types of jobs being created, you know, each day. I mean, cybersecurity is one of those fields in technology where it feels like we're always behind in terms of getting people like we're, there's just a shortage and we needed people like yesterday. <laughs> so speaking of, of timing, from the moment that <laughs> yeah. your husband said, you realize you're insane and yeah. you were like, okay, <laughs> I got to change this. <laughs> so you're getting your first paycheck in tech. How much time did that take? So it, it took a while. It, it, I mean, I, I don't want to make it out to be like this happened overnight. Ten years, it, it certainly ten months. It, <laughs> um, it, it took me approximately four years. Okay. Uh, between going to school, getting all of the things that I needed to, job hunting, interviewing, and, you know, finally getting that first paycheck. Like, oh, thank goodness. Look, I just moved and I realized I had things in my fridge that had been there for four years. Four years goes really quickly. You know, when I look back on it, I'm like, it did go by very quickly. But most importantly, it's that you've got to go into it knowing it's a journey. It's an investment of time, but it will fundamentally change your career. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The, the, the number of opportunities that you can have in technology, even if you go into one part and decide, okay, this isn't for me, and you go into someplace else, your earning potential is tremendous. The amount for career advancement, growth opportunity, it's, it's literally limitless in terms of what you can do uh, for yourself. 
So I, I advocate it for people because it's, you know, there, there's just so much you can do. There's so much you can innovate. There's, there's positions you can create on your own if you really wanted to. And that's not something that can be said for many industries. So it sounds like at the end of four years, you got what you had hoped for when you embarked on this oh. journey. And, and then some, I, I tell people, like, I, I never pictured being that I was going to be at IBM. I also never pictured writing a book. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the fact that both of these things happened and then some, I'm like, like, I am, this is all gravy as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> and really exciting. So in the first half hour, we were talking about the change that you made from financial services to tech knowing that you were gonna embark on a journey of re-education, of going back into internships, you know, really relaunching yourself. When you started that process, um, how scared were you, if at all? And how did you, who helped you navigate those emotions? So I was 110% terrified. <laughs> like, so like I, have, I have no ego about this. Like I, I really didn't know how this was going to go. I, I, I went in with the hope that, you know, that this would lead to something, but, you know, I wasn't exactly like 100% sure that all of this effort was going to pay off and, and all of this, you know, risk of relaunching and restarting a career was necessarily going to, to pay off either. So I was completely terrified the entire way through and it's funny, someone asked me, like, how did you feel when you went into your first hackathon or your first boot camp and, you know, even the internship, like terrified, terrified, terrified. <laughs> <laughs> was it just because um, it was a new thing or was some of this like um, about your own stuff? Like, are you, a, I got from the book that you're not really a social butterfly, that some of these things um, <laughs> kind of push some buttons that you had. Oh, it definitely did. I mean, there's there's definitely something to be said about trying something new and to be worried about failure. But there's also that, like, as I talk in, about in the book, having imposter syndrome, like thinking, like, I can't do this. And every time you get this accolade, like they just gave it to me for X, it couldn't possibly be because I'm actually good at sensing. Like, I, I joke that you know, the, the AI algorithm that got me the job obviously took a day off or something. Like I was saying all of these like <laughs> things in my head. And I mean, that to me, to, to be honest, was the, the hardest part about this transition, being my own worst enemy, so to speak, about just not believing and having confidence um, in myself. Let me ask you a couple of questions about that, because um, sure. we talked a lot about imposter syndrome on the show. We're a big fan of Valerie's. Um, it, imposter syndrome is complicated. There are a lot of different factors there. And one of the things that's a little, um, sometimes defies um, easy logic is that how much of what you were experiencing in that self-doubt was that you really worried that you didn't have what it took. And how much of it was that a way that, that as women were taught to be humble and that we then internalize that messaging? You know, that is a great question. I would say it probably half and half. 
honestly, uh, it, it, thinking about myself and just the weird mind games I would play with myself in terms of <laughs> navigating that piece. But you're right. We, we as women, we do tend to downplay ourselves, downplay our contributions. And, you know, one of the other things that was very difficult for me was um, advocating for myself and promotion, which is also a very important component of advancing your career, being able to be your own best advocate. But, you know, there was just something almost ingrained in me, whether it was through society or learned behavior or something else, was like, oh, no, they'll just recognize that I'm awesome and I don't really need to, that's not my, I don't do that. That's not polite. <laughs> right. And that polite thing is a huge burden. There was something that Valerie also said to us that kind of like knocked me for a loop. And she, and she said it with, um, with a real sense of humor, but there was something really truthful in it, is that somewhere at the bottom of it, if we're so convinced that we know that everybody else is wrong, there's a weird kind of confidence in there. Why can't we have that confidence come to bear on the work that we're actually doing? <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. That's, I mean, like, is, I mean, so I'm a video game player and like anytime like I, you know, like really rock a, a video game, I'm just like, oh yeah, I'm the woman, I'm bad. Like right. I, I'm, I'm like full of self-confidence. But when it comes to like work accomplishments, I'm like, oh yeah. <laughs> right. And, 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 you know, some of it's this conditioning because we can come off the wrong way. People won't perceive us in a way that's helpful to our careers sometimes if we behave the way that men do in this regard. How and where in this process, though, did you work through this enough so that you could say, believe, and exhibit that you know what you're doing? I had to do that pretty much fairly early on because the other component about when I was working in financial services was, again, I was under this expectation that if I do all my work and I'm docile and I, you know, I check off all of my boxes and everything, I will get this. And that was not true. Like I just wasn't advancing. I wasn't getting sponsorship or mentorship. Like I was just getting my paycheck. That was it. And that was true for like every position. And one of the things I said to myself at the onset was that if I'm going to do this, you know, I've got to, you know, take ownership of this and I've got to be bold and like, it's and I recognize it's scary. Like like I said, I was scared the entire time. But it's it's kind of what someone said to me years ago. If I'm saying no to this, I'm saying yes to something else. So if I'm saying no to being my own career advocate and, and speaking up and saying, you know, that I'm awesome, I'm saying yes to a little bit to complacency and that I'm okay where I'm at. And so I, I had to keep reminding myself of that. Like, what is the bigger, what is the bigger yes in this situation? I want to probe something that's in this bigger category of things that are hard to talk about. So um, also model, like, so if I get it wrong, correct me and help me navigate the right way to talk about this. You meant there was a word that you used in your self-description and it was docile. And it's not a word that we ever hear when people talk about their raging successes. It's not a hear we, word we ever hear men ascribe to themselves. And I would also posit it's not a word that we, white women 
um, ascribe to the burdens that they experience. To what degree is that another dimension of the burden that you carry because you're a black woman? No, that's a, that's a great and fair question. We're taught from a very early age, or at least for, for many of the black women that I've known and grown up with, that you know, you're meant to be meek when you, when you talk to people of authority, you don't question authority, you, you, know, you challenge it when it's necessary, when it's like an outwardly horrible thing that's happening. But if it's something on the lines of a microaggression or a stupid comment, you're, you're taught to just be as even keel as possible so that you are not pegged as the, the angry black woman or the angry black man. Because it's unfortunately, once you're labeled that in some environments, it, it is very hard to shake that. And it, and it really can do a lot of harm in your career. Mm-hmm. So it, it's something that we're unfortunately culturally taught fairly early on. And it's kind of, it kind of solidified as you go through both the academic and the professional world. So for those of us who are allies, who are trying really hard to be effective allies, how can we help our colleagues, the talent that we're trying to hire and bring in through the pipeline, um, navigate that to make place, especially for black women to have their voice without getting um, inappropriately labeled? Right. So the one thing I have to say about uh, allyship is that allyship isn't just saying that I'm an, an ally or you know, showing up someplace and, and you know, wearing a pin or something. Um, allyship really means putting yourself out there. And when I say put yourself out there, I mean being uncomfortable. So when you listen and you ask questions, uh, you may, in the, in the course of conversation, you may say something to offend. And I understand this because, you know, as a black woman, I know that many people are not going to experience the world the way that I have and that I do. So like, I can't put that expectation on allies, but I can put the expectation that you will listen with empathy versus listening with defensiveness. So like, if I say, this is how I feel, like, please don't get into a philosophical debate with me <laughs> about it. <laughs> you can't argue with feelings. Like, this is how you made me feel, what, you know, and, and just accept that for what it is. Um, but just learning, just understanding, and, you know, not expecting every person of color to kind of be the walking encyclopedia or dictionary about Black culture. One of the things I'm very cognizant of is uh, intersectional feminism. Like, because I'm a Black woman, that doesn't mean that every Black woman experiences life the way that I have and has the same privileges and resources that I have. We're all very, very different. And I always emphasize to people, treat people as people, talk to them, like, under, like understand them rather than broad stroking people. Because like that's also where people tend to, to run into to difficulty. Um, so that's, that's definitely important. But back to the original point of, you know, putting yourself out there, putting yourself out there also means challenging people when they say stupid things. 
and, and, and sometimes <laughs> yes. it's, it's going to be, it's going to be bad. It's going to be pain. like, I don't even sugarcoat it when I talk to people, but you have to be ready to have difficult conversations if we're going to move forward. Absolutely. And I just want to reinforce something that you said, because you said it so beautifully and it's so potent in all of our interactions, but particularly in issues of but specifically race and also anytime we're in dialogue with somebody whose experience is different than ours. It's listening with empathy and not defensiveness. Exactly. So, so one of the things that has been really hard to hear of late is when people say all lives matter. And I, I don't know if people realize that sometimes that can come off as a microaggression at, on its own because we're not saying the whole point of Black Lives Matter isn't that no one else does, but it's more of the acknowledgement that unfortunately this part of society has faced so many difficulties, like ridiculous in every arena of life, mm -hmm. like, you know, not just criminal justice or tech, but everywhere it's, it's an issue. And we just need to have this understanding that not only do we matter, but other people think that we matter and they're willing to make themselves uncomfortable to help us achieve a little bit more parity to, to some of the other you know, parts of society. So one of the other places where we can help people achieve parity is through mentorship and sponsorship. And um, talk to me about the the different roles we can play as mentors. And because it seems like there is a desperate need for black girls and black women coming up the pipeline to have black women role models, but also right. to have role models in, in multiple dimensions because it, it can all help somebody's career. So I want to, I'm really eager for your advice, both as somebody who's trying to create what we call a developmental environment in our office, how we can make sure that everybody who's coming in grows. Um, like I consider it a sign of success if my staff outgrow their roles in a certain number of years and go on to their next dream job. Um, and particularly if we want to help feed that pipeline with the talent that we need and want in these industries to give black women these opportunities and all women of color these opportunities, not to mention the rest of society needs diverse problem solvers in these fields that shape the rest of our lives. So as we're approaching mentorship, talk to me about formal and informal mentorship and how we can best help women who are coming up through the pipeline to find the mentors that they need. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, so for, for formal mentorship, it's usually done in, you know, either a, a business or a professional organization for a set period of time and to focus on a particular skill set or a particular area that you're, you're trying to improve upon. Um, informal mentorship, you know, kind of the same thing, but no fixed duration. Like it's just ongoing if, as you have time. Um, but the elements that are important for both is that mentors really do need to come from a place of both compassion and empathy. Uh, sometimes what I see in um, some professional or organization mentorship programs is a focus on, okay, this person has 10 years of experience, 
so they'll be able to do a skills transfer. And that's a very important component, but you, you want a mentor who, you know, is able to put themselves in the shoes of someone that doesn't look like them. Someone that may not have, you know, grown up where they grew up or have the same educational experiences and opportunities or what have you. Like, so not coming in from a, a standpoint of, okay, like, this is how I've experienced the world, so therefore, this is how it is. Because it's just not helpful and can actually backfire. So I think it's important to have that compassion and empathy and also being receptive to learn. I think mentoring relationships where both the mentor and the mentee learn from one another are probably the most successful and the most life-affirming because we can learn so much from one another. Like I learn from my mentees all the time. Like I'm, I'm learning about TikTok right now. So (laughs) (laughs) for, for better or for worse. (laughs) So Suzanne, you were talking about this idea of, of, you know, empathy and compassion, what a mentor needs to be. It makes me think that all of us should strive to be mentors, but not all of us are going to be good at it, but that there are ways (laughs) we can learn to be better. Absolutely. It's a skill like anything else. And, you know, skills develop over time. Like I know that I, you know, I wasn't like the greatest mentor when I first started mentoring. Like I was just like, oh yeah, I should have done that. Oh, oh. And like banging my head, like, oh, probably shouldn't have said that. It's a, it's a learning experience for you both, or rather it, it should be. And as long as you're approaching it with that level of openness and honesty and being willing to receive critical feedback from your mentee, um, this helps you improve your mentoring skill over time. I got to tell you, we've talked to a lot of people about mentorship. Um, you're the first person, and I really appreciate it, who's pointed out that not every mentor will be giving you good advice and you don't, and sometimes you have to be willing to have the difficult conversation to either um, make it a two-way dialogue or even end the mentoring relationship. Um, To what degree is that a dangerous thing to do when it's a formal mentoring program as opposed to informal mentorship that may have organically emerged? Yeah, it's it's a tough call and you you always kind of want to be careful before pulling that particular uh, trigger Um, because there may not necessarily be enough mentors to go around. So Mm -hmm. you you might've been stuck with this person. Particularly if you're looking for women mentors in tech. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Or, you know, there's this person that only has the particular skills and experience that you want exposure to. I mean, there's a lot of pitfalls with doing that. So I, I don't, recommend ending formal mentoring relationships lightly like if there's a misunderstanding it's always better to have open and honest communication with one another and try to fix the relationship but sometimes it's just not going to work out (laughs) and 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 if it's really the case where you where you feel like you're being harassed or belittled, or like you're, you're, you're just not feeling valued as a human being, um, formal or not, there's really no, there's no point in continuing that relationship. And to, to take it a bit further, it probably would be good to talk to those uh, mentorship organizers so that corrective action 
can take place so that the person improves as a mentor or you're like, thank you for your time. We no longer need your mentoring services. <laughs> right. Because, well, um, it sounds like part of the message here is both for the mentor and the mentee to come open-minded with some humility, um, a willingness to learn from each other, that there's never an excuse for feeling um, like your dignity is compromised in any way. Oh, never, never. But it is a relationship and, you know, that, and it does take time uh, to develop. And so it's just, despite any initial hurdles, like try your best to, to work those differences out, to communicate, be honest, um, but, you know, obviously if there's something where your self-respect or you just don't feel like you're being valued, then it's probably better to part ways. So I want to probe something that you said, because you noted that you have to bring compassion and empathy, and it's not just skills transfer. And like when I think about the people that I'm mentoring, sometimes it's the skill of how to negotiate for a raise or to ask for a new opportunity. But I find often... And I'm asking this partly so you can tell me if I'm off base. A big part of what we're talking about is how to think about your relationships at work, how to think about yourself at work, how to bring a framework into the workplace to maximize your success. To what degree should mentorship deal with who you are as a person and how you're approaching things? And how much of like when you mentor, is it skills-based? Um, I mean, just, Myself, personally, I, I think it should be more based off of the person that you are trying to um, to be in the workplace. I mean, the skills, you know, transfer is very important, but remember that there's, there's different ways to transfer skill that don't require a mentor. When you're, when you're in a mentoring relationship, you are bringing the best of you, the individual, not just your your skills and experience, but, you know, all of the things that make you intrinsically awesome and valuable. And if you can't share that with your mentee, you know, the mentee is the one that's losing out. So I'm going to introduce two different terms that I think we could use to round this out because there are coaches. There are people that you can do go to for coaching to build your skill set. And mentees are people, mentors are people I think of who are helping you develop and evolve and and understand where you want to go next and how to get there but then there's sponsorship which is different talk to me about sponsorship yeah. and particularly um what you would advise for black women who want to find sponsors so that they can jump to that ne next rung in the ladder yeah and sponsors are going to be necessary for you to move in your career. Like, I think it's great to have several mentors, but there is going to be that time in your career where you're going to need someone who has uh, the authority, the privilege, the resources, the social capital to advocate and say, this person's ready for this next step. The problem though, it isn't so much finding a sponsor, although that is part of it, um, it, it's being visible to them so that they're willing to um, advocate on your behalf. And I think the missing component sometimes in, in at least formal organizations is just really talking about that sponsorship piece. Like this person is really excelling at what they're doing. They're re like ready. Like what, what do we do to move them to the next level so that we don't 
not only lose them to another organization, but lose them from the tech industry in its entirety. And, you know, we all have to kind of collectively step back and think about, you know, what can I do to be this person's advocate? What do I have in my arsenal um, of privilege and resources to help this person advance in their career? And um, it's hard. It's, re- it's, really, it's really going to be difficult because first you have to find a sponsor within your organization, and then you have to prove yourself. Like, cause, I mean, there's a lot of risk being a sponsor. Like, you're, you, you are literally yeah. saying, I am putting my professional reputation behind this person. So, yeah, there, there's that double, <laughs> you know, that double kind of problem. But I think people just also need to think about, um, even if you're not someone that is necessarily in a position of authority, what can I do in, in my backyard or in my arsenal, what can I do to help this person? Can I introduce them to a key contact that will, you know, perhaps carry on a conversation? Can I refer them to a a training program that's literally going to help you propel to where you're going? So while you may not necessarily be a a sponsor in the truest sense of the word, um, there are definitely things that you can do, mentor or no, to help women of color advance. Well, I have to say, you are doing a lot to help women of color advance with all this amazing advice. And thank you so much for spending time with us today to help us spread the word. So if people want to find you, want to tap into your wisdom, where should they look? (laughs) Um, Well, there's my personal website, which is SuzannePedrick.com. I also have a website for uh, women of color in tech uh, titled WeBelongInTech.com fantastic. Suzanne, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And thank you everyone for listening. If you have a question about anything you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on Twitter at SXMBusiness and me at Laura Zarrow. I'd like to thank my beloved producer, Patty Hall, my sound engineer, Dion Simpkins, and my at-home support team of Jeff Greenfield and Ellie Zarrow. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Have a great week, and go lift someone else up. Take care, everybody. The British Invasion. Motown. Surf music. Surfing USA. The Summer of Love. 60s, a decade of change, a decade of unforgettable music. All 60s hits, Sirius XM, 60s on 6. Also streaming on your phone and on Sirius XM connected devices and speakers. Holding its line on a good line and down it goes! The best golf coverage is on Sirius XM PGA Tour Radio. The world's greatest golfers. Tiger Woods. Phil Nicholson. Fred Couples. The best analysis. Tiger's going to have to get a little chip back on his shoulder. Unforgettable moments. Towards the left edge, and it goes in! It's the most listened to golf in the world. Sirius XM PGA Tour Radio. Sirius 208 XM 93. XM 93. XM 93. For more insight from Business Radio, 
please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.